0: journey through the book of Revelation and so you can turn there to the first chapter. Last week we looked at the first eight verses which was really an introduction to the book and essentially what John shared with us in those verses is the purpose and point of the book of Revelation and that is to reveal Jesus Christ to us in a more, in a greater way than what we could have seen otherwise just from the Gospels. A complete and total unveiling of who Jesus is now as we come to verses 9 through 20 the rest of the chapter he actually shows us well I've entitled this message a portrait of the Savior because he draws a very graphic picture for us of who Jesus is and in a lot of ways this is the heart of the book in some ways because everything that comes after is simply to expound upon what we see here in terms of who Jesus is by then showing what he will do. But here he gives us a great picture of Jesus. Now, it is not a literal painting of Jesus. Uh, I've seen people make a poster taking all of these descriptions of Jesus and, and drawing him up with a sword coming out of his mouth and fire coming out of his eyes and brass feet and all this kind of stuff. It's He uses the language of simile, which is when you use like or as to make a comparative description. And John saw Jesus in his glory, but he does the best job that he can of actually expressing kind of, it was sort of like this. And yet he does an amazing job of communicating a lot of things about God, as we will see going through these verses. So, in verse 9... He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he didn't introduce himself as an apostle with all this experience. I mean, John was a big deal. By this time, he was the only one of the disciples who was still alive. And he had been the inner circle. You know, he and his brother and Peter had been those who were there at all the major events for Jesus. And yet, now as an old man getting up in his 90s, he just identifies himself as your brother, your friend, and I'm with you in the trouble that we are going through, I'm with you in the kingdom of God, and I'm with you in the patience of Jesus. The word there, tribulation, a lot of times when we think of the word tribulation, we think of what's called the great tribulation or that Seven year period of time that most of the book of Revelation is devoted to. It's called the 70th week of Daniel, or, you know, there are other titles, the time of Jacob's trouble, but several times it's referred to as the Great Tribulation. The word tribulation is a common word, it just means pressure. Um, the Great Tribulation refers specifically to that seven year period. So don't get confused and think, They were in the tribulation then. No, they were in tribulation then. They were in pressure, um, but not when John refers to that time we call the tribulation, he always calls it the great tribulation or other terms as well. But he goes, I'm just your companion with you. We're going through stuff together, learning to be patient like Jesus was. But he says, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ the church was undergoing increasing persecution. Now, back when Paul was writing his letters and doing his missionary journeys in the first 30 years or so of church history, um, there was persecution of the church. But most of the persecution was from other religious characters and leaders. It was primarily the Jews who were resentful of the Christians because they were taking people they perceived away from Judaism and so they created problems. In the early days the only reason the Romans cared about it is they didn't like the fighting among the Christians and Jews and so they wanted to shut it down in order to um, defend the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So, but something had happened by this time towards the end of the first century the Romans were beginning to understand that Christianity as it was spreading was a threat to the Roman Empire. Now you might go, well, why was that such a threat? And it's not for what you would expect. Now, the Romans definitely, they said that the emperor was God and they had all kinds of gods and everything. And, and, and they weren't that superstitious. I mean, the fact that somebody would believe in something else didn't threaten them all that much. But it went deeper than that because the Christians were those whose lives were being transformed. And all of a sudden, they weren't greedy anymore. And that made it difficult because the whole Roman Empire depended on oppressive taxation. And if people don't have much and aren't making much and they're sharing with each other, then the tax revenue goes down significantly. But not only that, there was another impact on the economy that was even greater. A ton of the resources that were involved in those days throughout Rome, and if you, if you go and see that part of the world, you see that they had lots of attention spent to temples and idols and things like that. When they start digging, some of the first things they find are these family idols. And idolatry was basically a superstition, but On the other hand, it was also a huge industry. And so, and and we even saw this with with Paul. Like somebody, a fortune teller was delivered of demons and the whole city was saying you're going to destroy our economy because they were so interrelated. The fortune tellers, the prostitutes, the temple priests, all of that, the people who constructed the gods and the idols. An entire industry could collapse if people rejected that idolatry. And that was happening all across the the Roman Empire, all across the known world. And that was a huge threat to them. And so finally emperors became deeply involved. Thinking after they destroyed the temple in 70 AD, they thought that would just crush the whole Judeo-Christian thing. But it didn't at all. It spread it out. It caused even more of of a you know outgoing outflow of the good news of Jesus Christ and this became of great concern and over all that too the fact that they wouldn't call the emperor a god and wouldn't bow down to the roman idols was also a threat to their morale the morale of the empire and this isn't so unusual because in every era when someone ascends to a position of power they so depend on morale in order to maintain their position. Because the truth is every political leader is a case of, of the emperor's clothes in a way, if you remember that old story. They only look good if everyone pretends like they look good. And, and so the greatest threat in any kind of political power base is if someone won't play along and bow down when the big idol of Nebuchadnezzar is put up or bow down in some phony worship of a of an emperor in Rome because hey that compromises my faith but that also makes me an enemy of the state because we need full participation today our political and I won't get off on this too much but our political system is you know in our modern culture is that we are tolerant of everyone because we want to have a big tent and we want everybody to gather together and agree on things. And that's a beautiful image in some ways. But when, when tolerance is that which is worshipped most, then intolerance becomes the absolutely untolerated thing. And if, if it feels like there are people who are not enjoying the celebration... They're, they're ruining the party, then they become the enemies. We have to get rid of those. And it's not just in our current political system, and we can certainly see it happening today, but it's always been the case. When someone ascends to power, think of Richard Nixon, who ascended to power. He had everything going for him, winning a landslide election. So paranoid, though. Even though great things were happening, he became paranoid, and it's what eventually brought his... brought down his, uh, you know, his regime ultimately over uh, really a a stupid break-in of the Democratic headquarters to try to find their strategy. We're talking Democrats. Strategy? Are you kidding me? (laughs) That was just stupid. But but it was like, I'm threatened by anyone who doesn't (laughs) praise me. Well, emperors have always been that way. And and in this case, the emperor Domitian was that way. And as a result, if an old guy like John, you know, you're not going to kill him. There are church traditions that say at one point John was boiled in oil, but that he wouldn't cook. And so they took him out and thought, what do we do now? And so they exiled him to this little island called Patmos. that wasn't unusual. Patmos was a little volcanic island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of, of Turkey, present-day Turkey. And it's just kind of a piece of rock, basically. It wasn't unusual for an emperor to order an old guy who's rocking the boat to just be stuck on an island like that. And so John, in the late 80s and on into the early 90s, John was banned to that island, Patmos, by Domitian. And it's on this occasion that he ends up having this revelation of Jesus Christ around 94 or so um, A.D. So John goes, I was there, (laughs) and it was because of speaking the word and testifying of Jesus. And in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. He was in the Spirit. Doesn't mean that he was in some kind of a trance or something. It was just that he was just in the presence of God, sensing the presence of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit upon him. The Holy Spirit is the one who, through whom these things would be revealed. As as John's gospel tells us that's what the Holy Spirit does. He reveals Jesus and tells us of things that are going to come. But so John was probably there, and, and the the site on Patmos that we believe traditionally believe that was where he had this vision and wrote this is on the side of the mountain there, and it's not really a mountain, a little hill, a volcanic hill, but into the into the what was a lava flow is kind of a cave, a little opening, and it was a perfect place to sit and watch the water as it would lap up on the shore and to get away. And you could see him, if he wanted to just spend time with the Lord and worship him, if you look at this spot, it's a beautiful spot to do that. It was on the Lord's Day. That probably meant Sunday. There's some dispute over what it actually means. Some people would say, well, that was the Sabbath. But if you read from early church fathers, Arrhenius, John Chrysostom, and others, they refer to Sunday as being called the Lord's Day. And interestingly, because most of them were Jewish, they still celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday. The Sabbath wasn't a day of worship primarily for Israel ever. That's where the, the um, people who today believe in keeping the Sabbath and therefore they have services on Saturday completely have it wrong. The Sabbath was about not doing things. It was about taking a day off. Now John Chrysostom says, They took the Lord's Day and met on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So you have the Saturday-Sunday coupling that we still, to a great extent, even in our culture, we have where Saturday's kind of a day off and Sunday's a day of worship. That's probably what was happening here. John probably went there on Saturday and and as Sunday came, uh, he heard this voice. And again, it didn't sound exactly like a trumpet. (laughs) it was as a as of a trumpet a trumpet is an interesting musical instrument i played one for years until they made me choose between sports and band and it was all over for band but the trumpet is a is an instrument that was always used as in the military for sending out commands because the trumpet of all instruments is incredibly clear it's sharp it's when it's in tune it's just amazing. To play a trumpet takes strong cheeks, strong lips, a quick tongue, strong breath, and man, it sends out this sharp tone that you could just tell exactly what it says, even from miles away. When someone plays on a trumpet or a bugle, you notice. it's, It's clear, it's sharp. And so the voice that he heard was just piercing. It was just that clear. You didn't go, huh? It was, you could hear it. Kind of like, I have a friend, Richie Fury, who was one of the founding members of Buffalo Springfield and then was in the band Poco. He's the only Calvary Chapel pastor in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But when Richie was in Poco, I read an article in Rolling Stone Magazine about the new Poco album, and the guy writing it said, Richie Fury's voice could cut glass. And that's kind of the idea. A voice that just goes, when you hear, you listen to Buffalo Springfield and you hear Stephen Stills and Neil Young, Jim Messina and all these guys, you hear Richie's voice and it just kind of cuts through. And uh, so he's going, I heard this voice that was distinct, it was just piercing. And the voice said this, I am right away. I am, as we talked about last week, is the thing that God uses to refer to Himself. It's what always got Jesus in trouble because He kept referring to Himself as I am, and they knew what that meant. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. We talked about this last week. He said, I am the A to Z in the Greek alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega. I am word. I am communication. When everything that you can put together to to compose something that means something, I am at the source of all of it. And I am the first and the last means that there was nothing before me and there's nothing after me. Earlier, God the Father said this about himself. Now this voice is saying it. And we'll see later in the chapter it's clearly Jesus. But he identifies himself and then he says... What you see, write. Twelve times in the book of Revelation, John is told to write. Writing is an amazing gift. To be able to take something and put it down where it has permanence, where it has clarity, distinction. He wanted it to be written. If John had experienced all of this, he's an old guy. And over time, he would have lost it or forgotten it or not passed it on to someone else. It was really important to the Lord that he write this down. And so he said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write this stuff down, send it to these seven churches. Now, he probably picked seven churches because seven is the number of completion, the whole deal as you know. Um, But also, all these churches are there in Asia Minor or present day Turkey. Ephesus, the first one, is the church where John had been serving as the pastor. John had ministered there for many years. He was in Ephesus when he was exiled to Patmos. But and, and Ephesus was the capital of that region, of that province of Rome. Now, the other churches, interestingly, there were more churches that even we know of in Asia Minor. But why did he pick these seven? Well, really, it was, I think, because these seven churches were the se- in the seven postal codes of the Roman Empire's postal system in Asia Minor in those days. And so this was to be a cyclical letter that would be delivered consecutively to these seven churches, and by delivering them to these seven churches, they would be able to be dispersed in each of these postal codes. Um, And if you look on a map of of Asia Minor and you see where these cities were, where these churches are, you see that going from Patmos, the closest port is Miletus, and when you go to Miletus, it's a short journey to Ephesus. And then if you go in a clockwise direction around Turkey, you cover these churches in order. And so it was simply delivery methods. But he has a different message to each church, and we'll talk about that more next week because next Sunday we will begin with the letter to the church at Ephesus, and each week we will take another one of these letters. They are relevant to all churches, they're relevant to all times, and... um, and so this is the complete package of what Jesus wanted to reveal in terms of here's who I am and here's what I have to say and here's what I'm going to do. And so he said write this to these churches and then he gets a little more specific later. But when John heard this voice, he turned around to see the voice. Well, it's a definite article, the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So I he heard a voice, but what he first noticed is there were seven, they weren't really candelabras as we typically depict now. They were, they were lampstands. They would be oil lamps arranged probably with seven little pots on them. And then there were seven of those around the one who was speaking. And in chapter, in verse 20, we find out that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, At the end of the chapter there, it says this. So he looks, and there he is, lampstands. Now, this depicts Jesus as being in the center of the churches. Jesus always emphasizes his connection to the church, not just his connection to individuals. And everything that we see in Scripture is all about what we do collectively. It's not such an individualistic thing as we in Western and American culture have kind of tried to make it out to be. It's all about the church. And Jesus is all about the church, and he is in the middle of the church, and I could preach a long message on that, but I want to get through this chapter. But there he is in the middle of those golden lampstands. But there he was... As one like the son of man, Jesus used that term, the son of man, about himself several times, emphasizing, I am a person. Now the term is used in the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah, and they didn't quite understand how that would connect, but it connects because God became a man. And Jesus will always be a man, as he is always God as well. But he chose to identify himself that way because he basically is saying, I'm one of us. Now, the way that John is using it is, wow, I heard this voice, but I saw what looked like a man. He had a, very, he had a human appearance about him, and that's because he is human. But he goes on, and that's important. He couldn't save us if he wasn't. He wouldn't understand us if he hadn't. But he was clothed with a garment down to the feet, as a priest or a king would be, and girded about the chest with a golden band. He was wearing a robe that, that was bound together, not at the waist as would be traditional for a normal person, but with a chest plate like priests and kings would wear. doesn't mean it's all made of gold, but it was, there was a strength there at the core of his body, with strength and beauty and royalty. And so his outfit speaks of this. And then he said, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Not like bleach blonde kind of hair, but it was it was his hair was shiny and silver. Now in Daniel chapter seven, verse nine, Daniel sees a revelation of God and it describes his hair in a similar way, and it talks. It, dis- it calls him the Ancient of Days in that thing. And probably the idea of his golden hair, of this bright wool-looking hair, was that he was someone who had lived long enough to earn the right to have hair that showed his experience. In their culture... And in the scriptures, it talks about this for a man or a woman, how gray hair is a crown. It shows that you've made it. I think we lose something by, you know, everyone thinking, oh, no, my hair is turning gray. I need to dye it. Now, if that makes you feel better, that's totally fine. I'm not knocking that at all, or fake bottle blondes, or anything else, like whatever <laughs> whatever you want to do, whatever you need to do, makes you feel better, it's totally fine with God, so don't let anybody lay a trip on you about it. Um, I'm a little bitter about gray hair simply because I lost my hair before I could really get that distinguished look <laughs> but but you know, and unfortunately, we don't treat women this way as much as women, but when, men, but when you see someone with silver hair, you just you think they're wiser. You you believe that they've been through life for a while and some younger guys when they go to get a job in, in the business world actually have their hair streaked with some gray so that they will appear to be wiser. But him being the ancient of days, him having this hair, refers to the fact that he isn't new. He doesn't have that baby hair. He looks like someone who has lived life and Been through things, and so that's it's interesting that he does that. And you who have um, hair that has turned white, good for you, you're looking more like Jesus. (laughs) And his eyes were like a flame of fire now, they weren't burning, but it's speaking about you know, there are people's eyes who just look alive and almost like they can cut through, just like the voice that cuts through a crowd. Some people have eyes that can look right through you. They, their eyes are so expressive. Most people's eyes are expressive. But I know certain people who, when they look at me, it's just like, wow, there's, it's a real piercing, knowing look. They're wide awake. They're, I, I don't think I look like this unless right after a five-hour energy drink. But it's somebody who just always is on top of it. They're just piercing through. That was what his eyes looked like. Like they could just burn right through you. I have had people stare at me and feel like it was burning right through me, but I don't think this is the same. (laughs) His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Fine brass. Not sure what that means, but the reference to the fact that they've been refined... Brass is something that you have to combine elements and, and put it through the fire in order to bring out of it what it's ultimately the beauty that it's going to have. I'm thinking of Jesus' feet. You know, when, after he rose from the dead, he came and appeared to the disciples. And after Thomas had questioned whether it was really Jesus, and then he saw him, Jesus said, look at the hole in my hand. You want to put your finger in there? Look at the wound in my side. Go ahead, shove your hand in there. And it doesn't say anything about the holes in his feet, but I'm thinking that somebody who had had their feet pierced with a nail, the, the, with a spike, the feet are going to take the greatest punishment from that because all of the weight of the body ultimately is put on the feet. And perhaps this is a reference to the, the damage... And the bronzing effect that came from feet that were used to walk on the earth and to work in construction and ultimately to be pierced through. And yet, there's a certain beauty to that. As the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those on the mountaintops who who bring good news. Now, if you spend a lot of time walking across mountaintops, your feet are never going to be featured in a magazine as being, wow, look how gorgeous these are. But there's something about a foot that has lived life and been places and done things that the Bible says, that's beautiful to me, that your walk expresses what you were willing to go through, and certainly for Jesus with his feet, it would be like, wow, that is, you can't help but notice them. And so he says, uh, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace." And now coming back to his voice, saying his voice is the sound of many waters. Now you go, but wait a minute, I thought his voice was like a trumpet. Well, no, it's not literally that way. It was very clear and distinct and expressive. But now it's also seen as being of many waters. Now on the Isle of Patmos, where John was most likely sitting when this happened, you would hear the waves come and crash on the shore. And there's hardly a more beautiful sound to me anyway in the world than the sound of those waves crashing. Because they just keep crashing. They just keep going. And it speaks to me of God's faithfulness. It speaks to me of just the refreshing, the way that it can the ocean can even restore itself. The way I just love to hear it. When we used to live in Huntington Beach, On a night when it was cold and the sound traveled fairly well, we would lay in bed and we would just hear the waves crashing on the shore. I don't know a more attractive sound than that. Um, But also, when I was a kid, we always went to Yosemite. And there's a place there called Happy Isles. If you've been to Yosemite, maybe you've heard it. But the water comes down out of the Sierras, down over Nevada Falls, down over Vernal Falls, and then it comes into Happy Isles. And the water there when it's at the peak season in the spring, early summer, it's just rushing over these rocks and it's an amazing and a beautiful sound. And I remember my dad sitting there with me next to that water and some of the only real good times I remember with my dad, but he read to me this scripture and he said, that rushing water, the many waters, that's what the voice of Jesus sounds like. So I'm thinking that it probably refers to the fact that his voice, though clear and distinct, was also refreshing, had a rhythm to it, was natural and and I, I guess this is the best way you could describe hearing the perfect voice, but like the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Now over in verse 20 he explains uh, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So we've seen the lampstands, those are churches. Now we see the stars that are in his right hand, those are the angels of the seven churches. Um, there's a dispute. What does that mean? There are some people. We use the word angel, and we usually mean one of two things: either a supernatural spirit, heavenly being, or a baseball player from Anaheim. But <laughs> but the word angel that's translated angel simply means messenger. It's used in the scriptures in different places to refer to someone who's sent with a message. And so my feeling is that these probably weren't what we would call angels. They're just messengers to those churches. Now some people go, oh no, they're angels, and therefore every church has their own angel that brings this message, and there's nothing else in Scripture that would indicate that, so I have my doubts about it. Also from a, from a logistical, bureaucratic standpoint, it doesn't make sense. If God wants to speak to the people in the church, why would God, who is heavenly, communicate to John, who is human, So that he could communicate back to seven angels who are heavenly, so that they could communicate to people, just too much trouble. And in the churches, in several of the letters, the angels are told to repent. Angels, as we know them, certainly would have no need to repent if they were angel from a church. So, um, most likely, um, and commentators differ on this some, but most people I think believe that these stars represent the pastors, the leaders of those churches. So I haven't decided whether I should put on wings and a halo or an angel's jersey. But, no, I'm no angel. <laughs> but I am a messenger, and so that's probably all he was referring to. There are other theories that people who believe in an episcopal form of church government see these as being bishops over all the churches in an area. But um, that early in history, it just wasn't happening. That, that's just wishful thinking. But anyhow, in his hand, verse 16, he had these seven pastors. Uh, this is what my interpretation of it is. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Sounded like water, sounded like trumpet. A sword was coming out. He's really focused on the mouth quite a bit here. And over in Hebrews, um, Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, yeah, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. Hebrews. He tells us that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. A two-edged sword could cut through anything in a devastating way. The word of God what he says it does that. It divides. He draws a line in the sand and you're either here or you're here. And so here I think just speaking of the fact that what he says cuts like a knife. It gets down as, as Hebrews tells us, it can even tell the difference between the joints and marrow and the thoughts and intents of our heart. It knows who we are. His word can get past all of our baloney and get right to the heart of who we are. And so the two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, just radiating out. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Usually people nowadays who go, yeah, Jesus came and I saw him and it was really cool. Played a game of chess with him or some Uno or, you know, when you see Jesus, he's, he's impressive. He, look at the way he is described and you can understand why it would be a bit intimidating. I'm skeptical of people who, you know, are telling me, yeah, Jesus comes and visits me every night and speaks to me. Um, the Bible tells us he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And frankly, I would rather have Jesus sticking up for me in heaven than playing Uno with me on earth. (laughs) But he fell down as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me and said, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. I'm going to come back to that verse in just a moment. Verse 18, though, he said, I am he who lives and was dead, literally became dead, and behold, check it out. Wow. Wow. I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now it becomes totally clear. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now earlier in the chapter, in verse 4, when it said he he was and he is and he is to come, it was referring to the Father because he was distinct there from Jesus Christ in verse 5. But here we realize that the totality of who God is rests in this one who is speaking, this one who is revealing himself, Jesus Christ Himself. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is expression. He is communication. You cannot formulate words without it involving him. You cannot understand those symbols that we put together, we call language, apart from him. And he he is the one who, you know, was he always was. Nobody was before him. He he always will be. Nobody's after him. And he is here now. But he also is alive. Even though he used to be dead, he became dead, he was alive. Then he became dead and now he's alive again forever. And that is, that's mind-blowing. But that's the center of what he wants us to see in this portrait of Jesus, is Jesus going, check me out. You've never seen anyone more alive than I am, no, more full of life. My eyes, my, my voice, everything I say is just what you always thought life was. But you know what? I was dead. I was dead, but I'm alive now. And I've also always been here all along. And, and he says... Uh, and I have the keys, the access, the authority of Hades and death. Hades was just a Greek word that they used to refer to the afterlife. It wasn't hell as we know it. It would be, their idea was, hey, wherever people go when they die, we'll call it Hades. It's the same basic word as in the Old Testament. The Hebrews used the word sheol and And Sheol meant the same thing, just the place you go after you die. So when you see these terms used, don't put too much, you know, significance. Like, why would he have the key to hell? Uh, You know, how about heaven? Well, this would include heaven, hell, anywhere where anybody goes after they die. Jesus said, I'm the one that has the ticket there. I'm the one that controls access there. And then he says in verse 19, which is probably the outline of the book, write the things which you have seen, that is this picture of Jesus, this sculpture, this portrait, and write the things which are, and he's probably now referring to the next couple chapters where he addresses the churches because that's Jesus' message to those who are in the church currently at that time, at the end of the first century, but they apply to all of us, and then he says, and also write the things which will take place after this, after the church. And so many people see here a nice little outline for Revelation. I think it's useful. Chapter 1 is the vision that he has seen. Chapters 2 and 3 talk about the church and that which is now. And everything after that would clearly appear to be after that after these things. It's one of the reasons why people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and because the book seems to deal with the church, and then all of a sudden the church is just left out completely. It's puzzling how the church can be mentioned like over 20 times in the first three chapters and never mentioned from chapter four on as being on the earth. So is one of the reasons, and as we go through it, I'll share my views. But um, otherwise, you have to explain what verse nineteen is about. And I'm sure if you don't want to believe in our perspective, you can make up something that works really well for you, and that's fine. You're entitled to. But to me, this is the outline of the book, and um, and I, you know when I obviously I'm going to teach how I've come to the conclusions that I have, but I'm not here to argue other people to get them to believe like I do. There are really good people who believe things differently than I do. I'm just going to tell you how I and other people have come up with what we come up with, and I'm not going to spend a bunch of time defending my position. It's just my position, and, you know, it's right, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) But now I just want to pull you back a moment because here we have the end of this of this initial revelation of Jesus. From here on, it's going to be, here's what Jesus says to us, those which are, and here's what he's going to do in the future. But as I was studying this passage earlier this week, something occurred to me that I thought was strange, and I think it's actually interesting and important, and so I'll share it with you. Notice back in verse 17... John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, you can understand the reaction, but here's what puzzles me. He, he hears his voice, he knows what he said, he sees his hair, he sees his eyes, he sees his outfit, he notices his feet, he, he, he in several different descriptive Terms concerning Jesus, and then he goes. When I saw him, I fell down as dead. My question is, how did he see all that stuff and remember all those details if seeing him knocked him down like he was dead? I could just see going, whoa, but then don't ask me what I saw, and I'm like, well, he had this. I noticed his vest was made out of gold and his hair was silver, and his voice sounded kind of like a trumpet, kind of like water, sort of like a sword. His eyes, boy, they just really pierced me, and his feet, I know, no, you'd be, I don't know, man, I don't know what I saw, but it bowled me over. But here's my theory. I, I, I was thinking that, and I went back through it, and chronologically took, okay, what did John say that he noticed? And I came across something that personally I really love because he goes through this whole description and do you see what the last thing is that he saw that he said, that just knocked me out like I was dead? It's in the end of verse 16 after talking about the two-edged sword from his mouth. Then he said his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. If, and we tend to think of countenance as being his face. If his son, if his face was like the sun, how do you ever see his eyes? How did he how did he even have the time to be able to focus and get everything else before he fell over? Well, the key, I think, is in the meaning of the word countenance. This particular word is one that only John uses in the New Testament and only three times, but the meaning has still been carried over even in modern usage. And in the Old Testament, the, the idea of countenance was used a lot. And what a countenance is, is not just a face. There are other words for face that even John uses. What a countenance is, is the expression on your face. And generally, it refers to an expression of pleasure. Um, In the Old Testament, often you'll see, may his countenance shine upon you. It means, may his face light up with a smile when he sees you. And given that I'm thinking of John. He loved Jesus so much. He had been the closest one to Jesus. He was, being, he was suffering because of Jesus but he hasn't seen him for over 60 years. And now as an old man he sees all this and he's going, okay, eyes, voice, chest, feet, And now, finally, he sees the countenance. Jesus looks at him, and he smiles at him. And it's that look that John couldn't miss. It's that look that he saw. It's probably the same look that Peter saw after he denied Christ. And it says that as Jesus walked by, he looked at him intently. And it just broke Peter's heart. And for John, seeing that look, kind of like Mary in the garden where she's like, are you the gardener? And he goes, Mary. And he used that name the way that he used it as a term of affection for her. And she instantly knew who it was. And I'm suspecting that John here finally knew who Jesus was when Jesus just lit up like the sun when he saw him. It would also, sorry, it would also take us back to one of the most memorable events in John's life when he and Peter and James went on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And Jesus was transfigured, and Moses and Elijah were there. It was just an amazing event. And Peter's like going, hey, we should build souvenir stands for all three of you guys. (laughs) And all of a sudden it said, the glory of God came out of heaven. And the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And at that point, they fell on their faces. Matthew 17, verse 17. And this is the next time we see John on his face. And the same thing happens. If you read in Matthew 17, it says Jesus came and he put his hand on them and said, don't be afraid. And here, again, hearing... The voice but seeing the expression. it was the way that Jesus looked at him, it just knocked him over. And then feeling that familiar touch that he hadn't felt for over 60 years, just the way that Jesus would touch him and say, "Don't be afraid." And I believe that every one of us needs to see the look on his face. And I believe that we need to feel his touch and to know that he doesn't want us to be afraid. That's Jesus. That's who he is. Sadly, there are a lot of people who have been Christians for many, many years, and they've never even felt like Jesus looked at them special. Never felt like he smiled on them or was pleased with them. The way he is looking at you is so important to see and then to feel his touch to feel him say, hey, don't be afraid. Many of us are being robbed of what God wants for us because we're afraid and because we really haven't paid close enough attention to Him to see how He's looking at us. And to me, this is kind of the core of this passage for me. It really, obviously, it touches me because there have been times when I thought He was looking at me a lot different than that. But to feel that touch and to be told not to fear. An amazing thing. The essence of Christianity, ultimately. If you're a Christian and you've never seen him look at you that way, you're not looking close enough. And this revelation of him is to speak to you. And everything that we see is, is for him to communicate that look of love and compassion and understanding and to feel his touch. If you're here and you've never really accepted Jesus Christ, you need to do it because he's looking at you just that way. He's looking at you as more special than anyone in this world has ever looked at you. And when that bulls you over, he wants to put his hand on you and say, It's okay. You don't need to be afraid. I'm the first and the last, I'm the whole deal. You've never met anyone like me, I'm the first. And you'll never need to find anyone else after me. I'm the last. He is there for you. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this revelation of your son. It's beautiful, powerful, and so important to us. And after all of the characteristics and traits and descriptive terms, I pray that we won't miss the way you look at us, the love that you have for us, and that touch that comes from your right hand. Thank you for this beautiful picture, and thank you for your beauty. In Jesus' name, amen.